right, I'm excited that you are here, and I uh, want to tell you this is not going to be a typical Wednesday night sermon, not a typical sermon for me at all. Most of the time, my MO will be to open up the Bible and to walk through a passage and just kind of go through it verse by verse, but at times, I will, I will tackle a topic And depending on the size of that topic, I may need to pull from various corners of Scripture and kind of draw them in and let Scripture interpret itself so that we get the full understanding of the topic. And there is no bigger topic than what we're going to talk about tonight and what's going to last us for the next uh, four to five weeks. And it is the topic of the Bible itself. What is the Bible? Where did it come from? What does it say about itself? This is one of the most important issues that Christianity has ever wrestled with. It is important historically for the church, and I believe it's more important now than it's ever been. And so I want to address this. I want to look at the Bible today, and I want to give you some historical background as we get started tonight. I'm going to throw a lot of information at you, so fair warning, I apologize in advance. I hope that you find it interesting and challenging and helpful, because we all encounter challenges specifically on this issue right here. Here's the historical background. For roughly over a thousand years, from the 500s AD through the 1600s, the dominant worldview in the West is that God created the heavens and the earth and that creation became broken and yet despite that brokenness, there was an order in creation, that there was a creator that held it all together. And that creator could be known through his revelation. And the pinnacle of that revelation is the person Jesus Christ. He is the word made flesh who came down to this broken creation to fix this mess. That is a pretty solid worldview. And that was the dominant worldview for over a thousand years, that God is there, that he is not silent. He has revealed himself first in the created order and then in his written word. And we encounter God through the person of Jesus Christ, who is uh, that which the Word speaks about. And that was the commonly accepted worldview in the West until a major shift happened. In the late 1600s, or or by the early 1600s, we had just come through an event. It was a, a massive event in the scope of human history. It was called the Protestant Reformation. And we owe a debt to the Protestant Reformation. Without it, you and I probably wouldn't be here in a Protestant evangelical church tonight. We'd all be Catholic or or nothing, right? And so I'm glad for the Reformation, but there was in the aftermath of that Reformation some bloodshed. There was some violence. You had Catholics and Protestants, and they were killing each other. And so the world observed that, and they took note, and they drew a conclusion, and they blamed this violence, they blamed this bloodshed, on the Bible. They said, what a divisive book is this Bible. Why we need to draw away from that. We need to move on from that. There's got to be a way that we can discern the will of God, the word of God, on the basis of something other than the scriptures. And so they set about the task of discerning truth apart from God's written revelation. And out of Europe, there emerged some additional worldviews. And one of them was called deism. And deism teaches that there is a God, and yes, he created everything, but then he stepped back. It was God exit stage right. God just, he created the world, he gave it a spin, and then he withdrew, and he's never re-engaged with the world. 
There are no miracles. There is no revelation of God among mankind. Some of our founding fathers in America have bought into this. Okay, Thomas Jefferson famously had his own Bible. He took a razor, he cut out portions of Scripture, laid them aside, and had a Bible to his liking that he agreed with. I apologize if you're a big Thomas Jefferson fan, but that's true. So deism. We also had something called uh, uh, enlightenment atheistic thinking. You had people like uh, the French philosophers Voltaire and Rousseau, and they were very anti-religion. They were very anti-God, and they said religion is just a way for people to control other people. And uh, Voltaire famously said, if God didn't exist, uh, it would be necessary to invent him. And so they were very anti-God. Modern Marxism kind of finds its roots in Enlightenment thinking. And then you had something called rationalism. And rationalism uh, was made famous by a guy named Rene Descartes. And Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Right? And so he said, the Bible is not the final authority. No, human reason is that which critiques the Bible. And, and the, the, the pursuit of knowledge begins with my mind, one's own intellect. And so these are the worldviews that emanated out of Europe and they began to make their way across the ocean to our shores here in America. By the 1700s, this occurred. And in the 1700s, you had some institutions of higher learning. You know the names, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Brown, right? All well-known, well-respected Colleges, would it surprise you to know that most of those were founded as Christian colleges? Isn't that something? That some of those existed for a hundred years or more before they graduated anybody that was not a minister of the gospel. That was why they were instituted. Well, clearly something happened. And these philosophies from the likes of Voltaire and Rousseau, they came across and they infiltrated places like Yale. And students at Yale bought into these. Now, here in America, people didn't really fight over the Bible. They all generally agreed the Bible was from God. We just disagreed on how to interpret the Bible. But then they bought into this stuff, this, this, this phenomenon of humanism, of secularism that made its way into these institutions of higher learning. And these students at Yale just disavowed God altogether. They just abandoned the Bible. Well, this concerned the president of Yale. He was a man named Timothy Dwight. Timothy Dwight was a Revolutionary War veteran. He was the grandson of a guy named Jonathan Edwards. You may know that name. A great figure in American religion. Sinners in the hands of an angry God and so forth. Well, Timothy Dwight was very concerned about the unbelief permeating the student body at Yale. And so he took it upon himself to have a series of chapel services with the guys at Yale. And he brought them all in and he took them through the Bible and he taught them what is called bibliology, the study, the doctrine of Scripture. And he walked them through the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture. And he went through some apologetics with these guys and he basically subjected them to a series of Sunday school classes. And do you know what the result of that was? A massive spiritual revival. There was a spiritual revival that school in that time turned back to God in mass. And it was a remarkable turn of events because this man, Tim Dwight, just talked about core truths of Scripture and validated the Word of God as what it presents itself 
to be, and God used it, and there was a revival. And not only was there a revival at Yale, but it, 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 it disseminated out from there, and it sparked what we call in America the Second Great Awakening. See, we had, we've had a series of great awakenings here in America. These were spiritual revivals that swept across our land, that, that resulted in a transformation uh, religiously, spiritually, ethically, morally, in our, in our country that contributed to our culture in meaningful ways. And that happened. There were camp movements, camp meetings that would take place along the countryside in America, all as a result of what happened at Yale. You had the emergence of denominations in America. At that time, the Baptists rose up. The Methodists rose up. And there was tremendous spiritual transformation. And this revival all started not in what we consider to be the Bible Belt with a bunch of evangelistic denominations. It started up in the Northeast with a bunch of guys from Yale, a bunch of Yanks. Isn't that something? And God used it. What does this tell us? This tells me that revival, authentic spiritual revival, does not occur as a result of emotionalism. It doesn't occur as a result of uh, addressing people's felt needs. It doesn't occur by uh, dumbing it down and contextualizing things for for people to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. It doesn't result in uh, performing a bunch of seemingly miraculous things on the part of a, a, a charismatic evangelist. This revival happened by introducing people to the concept of absolute truth, of saying this is what truth is. This is what God says truth is, and it is how he has chosen to reveal himself. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so we're gonna talk about this concept of bibliology. What is the Bible? Why does it matter? Turns out it's pretty germane. Turns out it's pretty important to real revival. You suppose we could use a a great awakening today? You think so? I don't think we're going to have one apart from the Bible. Do you? We've got to stick close to the Word of God, and we've got to learn to defend the Word of God. And so we're going to address some things. What is it that the Bible says about itself? Some people deny absolute truth. They say the Bible doesn't claim to be absolute truth. Uh, I disagree. John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Pretty straightforward. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Who defines what sin is? You need a standard to define what sin is. That sounds like absolute truth. And so this is our basis. Does absolute truth exist? According to scripture, it does. You know what? That ought to be a comforting statement to us. Isn't that a comforting statement? Why is that a comforting statement? Well, it takes the pressure off of us. Don't you agree? Now we don't, we don't have to come up with a system to navigate all the varieties and the perceptions and, and the value systems that are out there. Instead of me saying, well, I realize that what is right for me is not necessarily right for you. And what is right for you, well, that doesn't really work for that guy over there. And what's wrong for me is not wrong for you. And this is my deal and that's your deal. No, we don't have to navigate all of that. We got a standard. We say, hey, what, 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 what is my situation is the same as your situation. And the solution for my situation is the same as the solution for your situation. That ought to be a comforting, less stressful thing because it would be, frankly, exhausting to try to navigate life apart from an absolute standard. And yet, the world today hears that 
it hears us say that there's absolute right and wrong, and they say, how intolerant, how ignorant, how divisive, how arrogant. Well, we're going to look today at what the Bible purports itself to be, and I submit to you that the Bible is comprised of the thoughts of God. The thoughts of God. That's what we're going to call this series. How are those thoughts presented to us and what are we to do with them? All right? Let's pray before we move on. Heavenly Father, I I lift up uh, this group to you. I'm thankful they're here, God. I'm encouraged by their presence. It means that they're hungry. They are seeking truth. They recognize truth or they would find something else to occupy their time on a Wednesday night. And I pray that you would just bless our time studying this marvelous revelation that you have presented to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start by giving you six areas of bibliology. That's a $64 word right there. It just means the doctrine of the Bible. That's all it means, okay? And here are the areas, and one of them in particular we're going to look at tonight, and that area is the first one, revelation. And in your notes, it is defined as this. It is the thoughts of God to the human author's mind. The thoughts of God to the human author's mind. Mind. Some of you saw Revelation, perhaps, on a graphic for tonight's message, and you might have got excited, thought we were talking about the book of Revelation. We're not talking about the book of Revelation. We're going to at some point. Don't worry. Just hold your horses. But really, your entire Bible is Revelation. From Genesis all the way to the end, the whole thing is the Revelation of God. Uh, when we say that, that we're reading Scripture, we're talking about something revealed by God to man. So Revelation, another area tied to that that we will touch on tonight that we'll get into more in a couple weeks is the area of inspiration in your notes. And this is the thoughts of God to the recording, you see, because there is a record of his thoughts. He reveals them to human authors that he has appointed for the purpose that they would put pen to paper and write it down. They're going to uh, uh, record the words, the thoughts of God. And as they do so, this is called inspired text. And it is, by definition, inerrant. And that's a subcategory of inspiration. We say that the Bible is inspired. And it's sad, but today you kind of have to go on. You say, we have to say that I believe in the inspired, inerrant. Word of God. People didn't used to say, I believe in the inerrant word of God because they didn't have to. Because that's implied by the fact that it is the inspired word of God. Because a book reflects its author, amen? And God is without error. So therefore, his word is without error. But people struggle with that. They, they wonder, is the Bible really true? Is it, is, it, is it totally true? Or is it just true in terms of its spiritual ideas? You know, is the Bible like a two-story house? And the first story has all this stuff about History and science, and that's all rife with error. Ah, but that's second floor. That's all the spiritual content. That's all the stuff about God. That's true. Some people say that. It's kind of a neo-Orthodox way to see it. We're going to talk about all that over the next few weeks. The third area is illumination. And this is the thoughts of God to the reader. Okay, God revealed it to human authors. They wrote it down. Now you have it in front of you. You've got it on your lap. You've opened it up. Can you understand it? It's going to be illuminated for you to understand it. Uh, were the Catholics right? Are they like, well, the Bible is really only valuable to, to a select few? You know, the Pope? The priest? Are they right? Or is Martin Luther right when he said, no, Pope, priest, or plowboy? 
All can open the word of God and the spirit can illuminate it to them. That's illumination. Then we're going to talk about something called canonicity. Canonicity, that is the thoughts of God standardized. Standardized. Is, is scripture recognizable? Uh, the books that you have in your Bible, how do they get there? Why these particular books? There's 66 books in there. Who, who chose those? Why those? Why not others? I've heard of some others that aren't in there. How come they didn't make the cut? Who made that decision? Was it the church that decided what books go in your Bible? Or did they merely recognize what was already Scripture in the eyes of God? We're going to talk about all that very fascinating subject, canonicity. Um, what about reliability? We're going to talk about that. Is, is, are the, this is the thoughts of God trusted. The thoughts of God trusted. Can we trust the Bible? Is it still true? Is it reliable? You know, I mean, it's pretty old. It was recorded a long time ago. It's been copied and recopied and recopied. And surely there's been mistakes along the way, right? I mean, can we really trust the Bible? Some people get worried about that. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the manuscript copies that we do have, they are all from before the 10th century, um, and this much is true. There are roughly 100,000 places in those copies that contain what are called scribal errors, scribal mistakes. Does that make you nervous? Is there a way to address that satisfactorily? Well, you better keep coming on Wednesdays to find out. And then application to finalize this. This is the thoughts of God to the human heart. Okay, and, and herein is the idea that we're not just to look at the Bible and say, well, look at that, the revelation of God. How about that? No, we're supposed to do something with it. It is meant to be practical. It goes somewhere. God told Moses, Deuteronomy 32, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. We've already read Psalm 119. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's a purpose. There's an expectation. There's an intention with Scripture. It is to be applied, Okay. And so we're going to focus tonight primarily on revelation, the, the concept of revelation. And there's two different kinds of revelation in your notes. The first one is called general revelation. And I want you to jot down this definition of general revelation. It goes like this. This is God's witness of himself to all people through the created order. All right? That's general revelation. Revelation, uh, God's witness of himself to all people through the created order, okay? This is something that every man has. This is not something that is just for Christians or Jews. Everybody has general revelation. You don't need to be a believer or a righteous person to have general revelation. You don't even need to be holding a copy of the Bible, because this is God's revelation through the created order. It comes first through nature, and then it comes through the image of God in man. We call that the imago Dei in the Latin. You contain, just in your makeup, the image of God in one sense, all right? But the scripture tells us about how God reveals himself from nature. If you don't believe me, take a look. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. I love how poetic that is. And the idea here is that sun, stars, moon, the, the cosmos, 
on down to where we are on the earth, the mountains, the vegetation, the trees, the oceans, the animal life, the marine life, all of it points to a creator. It points to God. We see his imprint on the creation all the way down to plant pollen, all the way down to microscopic things like like a cell membrane. Uh, And we look at creation and we marvel at how God designed the intricacies that we find in nature. When you look at dragonflies and how they can mate in midair, it's, it's amazing. The detail that has gone into that, clearly there is a maker. I have stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and I can see God's handiwork. I've stood at the foot of, of Half Dome at Yosemite back in California from whence I just came. And it's obvious that God did that. And the psalmist goes on in verse three, he says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's proclaiming the existence and the glory of God. And that is such a gift. Don't you love it when you go to the Smokies and you just, you just take that in? You go out on a lake, you go out on the ocean and you're just appreciative of God. You're aware of his creation, of his work. That's a blessing to all people, but it's also a curse. What do you mean, Pastor Scott? Well, look at Romans 1.20. Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And here's the curse part. It wraps it up this way. So they are without excuse. See, it makes you aware of a God, but it also takes away an excuse for ignorance that there is a God. No one can say, I didn't know. I didn't know. I've been asked this before. Somebody just asked me right before the service tonight, hey, what happens to people who die and they've never heard? I was in a young adult's Bible study one time. There was a young guy there. He was a brand new believer. His name was Nick. And he asked that question. He goes, hey, Pastor Scott, what about, what about, I love young adults because they've got so many questions. He goes, what about the, the, the people in, in deepest, darkest jungles removed from civilization? Where do they go when they die? They go to heaven? Because, I mean, you know, they've never heard. And I said, well, actually, and I, I read to him Romans 1. And I went through all that, that God is revealed through the created order. So they are without excuse. He goes, wait, you mean if, they're without excuse. I said, that's what Paul says. He says, you mean, you mean if we don't go and tell them about Jesus, they're going to go to hell? I said, that's right. And he goes, he stood up and he goes, well, what are we doing here? And he ran out. <laughs> and we just kind of watched him go, you know, it's like, there goes Nick, you know. And it was kind of cool because it's like he got the urgency, you know? And he came back eventually and he was huffing and puffing and he sat down and, and we took a moment to kind of talk about this. Yes, you're right, Nick. That was, that was a great realization. But yes, all men are without excuse. No one is gonna stand before God and say, I had no idea that you existed. Because Romans says all men are without excuse. We have something called conscience. Uh, the Latin word for conscience, you know, some of us when we think of conscience, think of Jiminy Cricket. You know, he's Pinocchio's conscience, right? Uh, A sense of what? He tells Pinocchio what to do. He tells him the difference between right and wrong. That's what your conscience is. Conscientia in Latin with knowledge. 
You have an innate knowledge of right and wrong. Where did you get that? You got it in the garden. God told Adam, first of all, he created Adam in perfection. He gave him one command. He said, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. Everything else you see is yours. That tree, what was it called? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. How'd that work out? Huh? They ate of the tree, right? What did they then have? Now, God covered for them. He, he clothed them, so he covered their sins, so they didn't die immediately, but they now had what? It's all in the name of the tree. They had the knowledge of good and evil. They were never meant to know evil. They were only meant to know good. God created them to be in relationship with him. He didn't want them to know evil. And yet they disobeyed and therefore they knew good and evil. Therefore they knew the difference between the two. Conscience. And so from then on, God would judge them or not judge them. He would, he would govern them according to that conscience. According to that innate sense of right and wrong. We all have it. We all have an innate morality. C.S. Lewis uses this argument to great effect for the existence of God. Some people say, I don't believe in God. Why not? Well, there's too much evil in the world. Well, you, you just made a case for the existence of God. What do you mean? Well, you recognize there's evil in the world. How could you recognize evil in the world unless there's an absolute good? You just proved Genesis right. Because Adam and Eve then had the knowledge of good and evil, as do you, and you are descended from them. You just prove the existence of God by virtue of the fact that you are acknowledging evil. Everybody's got a morality. Everybody. Some people say, no, they don't. What, 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 about, what about the headhunters? You know, in deepest, darkest, whatever. And nobody ever knows where these headhunters are. Oh, they're in Africa or they're in South America, whatever. But they're, you know, headhunters, you know, they, they, don't, they don't have a morality. Well, their morality is askew, I'll give you that but they still have a sense of morality. You know what headhunters don't like? They don't mind hunting heads. They don't like their heads hunted. <laughs> See, as Lewis answers the, the, the skeptic who says, well, you know, some people don't believe in right and wrong. You know, he says, if anybody says that, if anybody says they deny the existence of right and wrong, all you gotta do is punch them in the nose. <laughs> they will immediately believe in right and wrong. You have just wronged them. Now, I'm not advocating you punch anybody in the nose. You understand that, okay? We don't want that. But this is the truth. We all have a conscience. Your brain is not a tabula rasa. It's not a, a blank slate. You have an a priori knowledge that is put upon you. That's why hell exists. It's not for the ignorant. It's for the rebellious. If, if you go to hell, it's because you have rebelled against a God that you are innately aware of. Helen Keller. Helen Keller. Uh, famously blind and deaf. Uh, when she was born, she had a, a fever. It was a horrible fever caused her to be blind and deaf. Her earliest memories were in solitary confinement. She had an instructor, Ann Sullivan. If you've seen the play or the movie, The Miracle Worker, it's that story. Ann Sullivan taught the blind and deaf Helen Keller how to communicate. And one of the earliest words she taught Helen was the word God. And later Helen Keller would say, I always knew him. I always knew him. I just didn't know his name. I just didn't know his name. And so we have a general revelation. We also have in your notes a special revelation. And this is the definition for you to write down. It's the revealing of God's thoughts to the mind of man 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, a, this is beyond, this is gr- much greater specificity than the ge- general revelation. Okay? This is God in concrete form that is given through the Holy Spirit to a person or a community of people. It's a special message to a people of God's choosing, and it happened historically through the miracles and the mighty acts of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets. In the New Testament, he spoke through the apostles. And everything in your Bible is a special revelation. Everything. Uh, And the process by which we got the Bible is called inspiration. And we'll touch on that briefly in just a bit. But the people who receive that revelation in special form, is there something special about them? Do they get it because they're special? And the answer is no. No, God, God didn't select any recipients for his revelation based on their superlative brilliance. Or anything like that. In fact, I could, I could show you one example at least where he would choose some, some downright awful people to give revelation to. Uh, you're aware of the Christmas star. We just came through December. We all know the story of the star that the wise men followed. The wise men, incidentally, were not righteous men. They were pagan astrologers. But they had studied the Hebrew scriptures and they recognized a prophecy and they are watching the night sky and they see this star and they follow it in accordance with this prophecy. What prophecy were they referring to? Well, it was found in Numbers 25, and it was a prophecy that was given to a guy named Balaam. Balaam, of the famous talking donkey story. Now, Balaam was not a righteous man. You may not know that. Balaam was an awful man. He was a greedy, unscrupulous uh, man who, who was sort of a con man, and the pagan nations... Would, uh, inter- they would they would engage with him because they thought he was a prophet who could negotiate with Israel's God and try to work out a deal that would benefit pagan nations. And so he was a greedy con man, essentially. And yet, God chose him to receive an oracle. And we read it in Numbers 25, and it says in verse 27, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now that prophecy is 100% true and is predictive of the Messiah, who would come years later, many, many years later, but is given to this, this fallen guy, this pagan guy. Even the righteous People in Scripture to whom God gives revelation, they're not perfect. You think of the disciples. Think of Peter. Was Peter the sharpest knife in the drawer? Not all the time, and yet he wrote First and Second Peter. You think of James and John. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Why did he call them that? It wasn't a compliment. All right? They were, they were scrappers. They were belligerent. They were uncouth. They were just trying to get a leg up on everybody else, one-up everybody, and yet one of these boys, John, writes some of the most beautiful books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. So it's not dependent on our special innate nature, all right? Paul was imperfect. God delivered him. God made him. He was a persecutor named Saul. He became a pursuer of Christ named Paul. And it is the words of Paul that Peter recognized as Scripture. I want to show you 2nd Peter 3, verse 15. He speaks about Paul right here. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. 
also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. The wisdom given him. Wow, what wisdom? Revelation of God. Given to who? Paul. By who? God. Verse 16, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I want you to underline other scriptures. What is he implying there? He's implying that what Paul writes is scripture. He's saying people twist Paul's words just like the other scriptures. He's putting Paul on the same level with all of the universally regarded words of God, the special revelation that came down, all right? He calls them scripture. Incidentally, scripture does not refer to just any writing, okay? The scripture refers to that which God has revealed that he intends for you to write down. So we need this kind of revelation. It's not enough just to have general revelation. We need a special revelation. Why do we need a special revelation in the form of, of the Bible, what you and I are reading from uh, every week when we gather. Why is a Bible essential? Where did that word Bible come from anyway? You know the word Bible is not the Bible? You could search for it. It's not there. Where did that word come from? Well, it used to be uh, that people would look at the books of the Bible. By the way, there are 66 and they would look at these 66 books and they would call them collectively the Biblia which means the books, plural. And then they realized, hey, wait a minute, all 66 of these books are unified. They've got common themes. They all carry the same ideas about God, about man, about sin, about history. Everything begins in Genesis, ends in Revelation. It is consistent. There's a through line. There's a story. And it's all about the glory of God and the redemption of man. And it's all unified. And so they stopped calling it the Biblia and they started calling it the Biblion, the book, transliterated as the Bible. One idea with 66 different incremental parts. And then someone invented something very, very necessary and very beneficial. Because can you imagine, what if you and I today wanted to go study the, the Biblion. We wanted to go study the Bible. So we're, we're, we're walking into Starbucks, hauling a wagon behind us with 66 scrolls, and we gather them all up, and we throw them on the table, and we get our mocha latte, frappuccino, mocha, whatever it is, and we sit down, and we just one by one unroll all these scrolls. Can you imagine how difficult cross-referencing would be doing all that? And so somebody invented something called a codex. What's a codex? That's what you and I think of when we think of a book. Anytime you open a book, you're opening a codex, a physical book. It just opens like that. And instead of a scroll, they take leaves, i.e. pages, and they've inserted them into a codex. And so traditionally, that's what a physical copy of the Bible is in. It's in a codex form. And how, how wonderful that is. And the first time that ever existed was with the Word of God. The, the very first book as you and I know books, was the Bible. You can visit the Museum of the Bible up in D.C. and learn that very fact. It was the first book as we think of books. And so we need this special revelation in physical form. There is a reason that God had people write it down. 
Because there are some things, first of all, there are things we must know. In your notes, there are things we must know. I gotta know some stuff. And number one in your notes, I gotta know about my origin. I need to know where I came from. I can't be left to figure that out on my own. If I'm left to figure that out on my own, I'm gonna gravitate toward guys like Darwin and what he came up with. But I, I, what I need is the truth about my origin. I need to know that I am a creation of a creator who has a design for me, who has a purpose for me, who loves me, who cares for me, someone greater than I am. I'm not the product of random chance. I didn't just crawl out of the primordial stew. All right? I need to know about my origin. Secondly, I need to know about the nature of man. I need to know this. I need to know about man. Why is man greater than all the other creatures? What separates us from the beasts? Why do I have a morality when the tigers and the lions and the bears do not? Why is there a longing in me for something outside of me? Third, I need to know about evil. I see it. I see the evidence of it. I walk outside. I see the beauty of creation, but there's a grotesque scar. As I look at the life around me, I see uh, this thing called evil and it takes the form of hatred and violence and rape and murder and greed and adultery and racism and, and oppression. Why is it here? Where did it come from? Where did that originate? Is there original sin? What brought that on? I need to know. And then fourth, I need to know about redemption. If I know about evil, then I, I want to know what to do about it. How do I navigate evil? How can I be delivered from evil? I need to know this. Are we just doomed to live in this state? Or is there a restoration somewhere? I need to know, number five, about my moral duty. What is my obligation? Uh, what is my obligation to my maker? What is my obligation to my fellow man? What is my obligation to my wife, to my children? How come I can't just do what I want? Or can I do what I want? Can I take whatever I want? Can I sleep with whoever I want? Can I lie? Is that justifiable? What is my moral duty? And then number six, what is the future? I need to know about my future. I need to know about the future of mankind. What does the future hold? Will we progress? Are we going to get better in every day, uh, on every day in every way, or are we just going to continue to cycle downward? Are we going to uh, just slowly creep down the drain like we appear to be doing? Is there any hope? I look around domestically on the global stage. Things are not getting better. Where are we going? Is this going somewhere? Is history leading somewhere? I need God to speak. And this kind of specificity does not come through general revelation. General revelation only gets me to the knowledge that there is a God. It does not tell me who that God is. And so there is someone in your notes, there is someone we must know. Not only are there things that we need to know, there is someone we must know. C.S. Lewis talked about that moral argument. He said, the moral argument will, will tell you there's a God, but we are a long way from the God of the Bible. We're a long way from Jesus. That's why we need special revelation. That's why we need the word of God. My excuse has been taken away, but now I need an identity to go with the concept of God. It's been said that one of the darkest days in human history is when Rene Descartes closed his Bible. He's the father of rationalistic thought. You know, he was, he was raised in the Christian tradition. 
He was Jesuit trained. And one day, he put down his Bible. He went into himself, and he said, the key is my intellect. I will reason my way to truth. But rationalism failed. And you know why rationalism failed? Because, and this is the story of all the philosophies of mankind. They all come along and destroy one another. Every philosophy gives way to the next philosophy. It's the next hot commodity. Something's pretty popular for a while, but then something else comes along. Some other wise guy comes and says, ah, that doesn't work. And that's what happened with rationalism. You had some guys coming along going, you know, that doesn't work because you can't arrive at truth with just reason because you're tainted. You're corrupt. You're just a human being. Who are you? To say who truth is. That's your reason. That's not my reason necessarily. So your thoughts are different from other people's thoughts. You're biased. You need to work in the area of empirical data. And thus you have the rise of empiricism. Just look at cold hard facts. Look at the science. And then other people came along. They said, well, that doesn't work either. That doesn't work either because you're still biased. It's your perception of those facts that is going to be askew. We're not going to agree on the empirical data because your perception of that data is different from my perception of that data. I mean, this could all just be a mirage. We don't know. We could be living in the matrix. I could be Keanu Reeves, you know? Take the red pill, you know? All of this. And so that leads into skepticism. That leads into agnosticism. Who's to say? Can anyone know? You know? And that found its way into the church. By the 1800s in Germany, you had some liberal theologians that arose. You had guys with the names like Schleiermacher and Bultmann. And they came along and they said, you know, this Bible is just a record of fallen man or or flawed man's uh, perceived encounters with the divine. But those miracles, all those instances of the supernatural, that was all added later, and it's erroneous, and we're going to just extract those. We're just going to take those out. We're going to demythologize the Bible, because that's dangerous. What we got to do is get to the heart of the Bible, and the heart of the Bible is a social message. It's it's a social uh, gospel There's nothing divine there. And by the late 1800s, thinkers said, we can't know anything. By reason, by senses, by data, by scripture, we can't know any of it. And in that void left by the church in Europe, (laughs) stepped a man named Charles Darwin. And he filled that void. And he said, guys, guys, you don't need God. There is no God. Everything has arrived by random chance and evolution. And he promoted the theory, and it is a theory of evolution. And this mentality of the survival of the fittest fed the philosophies of world leaders. And we moved into the 20th century, and you had, in 1917, a guy named Joseph Stalin. And then in the 30s was the rise of Adolf Hitler. And you had Mao in China and in Cuba. You had Castro in Cambodia. You got the Khmer Rouge. And this whole century of the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. And it's because it subsisted on the philosophy of survival of the fittest. And there is no absolute truth. All of those regimes have this in common. There is no God. There is no revelation of God. And therefore, there is no ethic We could do whatever we want. And we've reaped the consequences of having no absolute truth at the core of any of these. 
any of these institutions. And so Descartes closes his Bible and eventually we get to Hitler and six million dead Jews. All because people put down their Bible and they embrace human reason. Once you get rid of the Bible, nature just eats up grace. Planet Earth without a Bible is a very, very dark place. That's why the places that have no witness of of the Scripture, we call those third world countries. They're very dark. They're very dangerous. What they need is an absolute. They need a book that makes some claims. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to give you the principal claims that the Bible makes. They're not many, but they're all important. And the first claim that the Bible makes in your notes is that it's divine. It's divine and it's not from mankind. It is from God. People say, well, the Bible never claims to be the word of God. Oh, contrary. There's a, there's a Greek word for that, baloney. All right? How many times does the Bible call itself the Word of God? Over 3,700 times. The Word of the Lord. The Word of God. And the Word of the Lord came to me. All right? Over and over. The books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul wrote them. They're called the pastoral epistles. They're written to pastors. Why? Because the age of the apostle was coming to an end. And we'll talk about that when we get to canonicity. But the, the canon of Scripture is about to close. God is about to not give any more fresh revelation by the time Paul is writing to Timothy. That letter, that second letter to Timothy is going to be the final communique from the Apostle Paul through the the window of the Mamertine prison in Rome. And when that goes out, that's all we hear from Paul. Okay? And so he addresses pastors. Why? Because they need to preoccupy themselves with something very, very important. And 2 Timothy, every chapter in 2 Timothy is about the Bible. Every chapter. Because that is to be the focus of the church. And here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy. He says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Hey, we got any of those going on right now? I think so. I want you to drop down now to verse 13. Take a look. It says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And this is the story of mankind. Uh, Nobody finds God through rationalism. You will never get there through, you don't think your way to the infinite God. That doesn't happen. Verse 14, he says, but as for you, young preacher boy, Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Please underline sacred writings. That phrase, my friends, is called a hapax legomenon. You're like, Pastor Scott, you and your words, it's called a hapax. You know what a hapax legomenon is? A hapax legomenon is a word or phrase that appears only once. Only one. This phrase, sacred writings, does not show up in the rest of your Bible. This is it. And in the Greek, the phrase originally is hierographe. Hiera from hieron, which is the temple. And the temple is associated with being the holy residence of God. Therefore, it is the home of the sacred. And graphe is, the, is, is for the word for writings. And so Paul takes the word for the temple and he uses it to modify 
These writings, scriptures, Timothy, these are not just writings. These are not normal writings like of of any human author. This is where you find the thoughts of God. He said, these sacred writings which are able to make you wise. And this is the second claim is that scripture brings a wisdom that cannot be found in mankind in your notes. It's, it, there's a wisdom not found in mankind. This is not like other writings. You don't put the Bible up on the same shelf next to the Quran, next to the Bhagavad Gita, next to the Book of Mormon. It's not the same. It makes you wise, and not just wise, it makes you wise, he goes on, for salvation. In your notes, it offers salvation not found in mankind. This is a supernatural book. All we need to know that Scripture teaches us about evil, about sin, about redemption, about Christ. He says, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then this is the monumental verse 16. All Scripture... I had a Bible teacher in uh, college. He said that word all. He said all means all, and that's all all means. (laughs) All Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. Underline that phrase right there. Now, some of your versions, you may have a version that says all Scripture is inspired of God. I'm okay with that. We're talking about the doctrine of inspiration. The only problem with the word inspired or inspiration is that it's been hijacked. It's come to mean other things in our world. Uh, Now, to say something is inspired just means it's meaningful. It's moving. It's got a beauty. It makes an impact. You know, it, it, it motivates you. Movies are inspiring and songs and poems and paintings and sculptures and sunsets. And, you know, people's actions are inspiring. And, and to say something has inspiration means that it just, it comes to you, but it, it, could be from, it could be from anywhere. That is not what this word means. Originally here in the Greek, what you need to know is this word from which we get our word inspired, this is the first time it ever appears anywhere. The word from which we get inspired shows up in the writing of Paul right here in, in 2 Timothy 3, this is the first place it ever appears, and it's a compound Greek word. It's the word theonustos. Theos means God. Nustos comes from the root pneuma, which means breath. God breathed. To inspire is not to breathe in. It's God breathing out. God breathed into man to fill him. Pneumatic tires, pneumatic tire, you fill them with air. God filled these human authors with his word. And how much of scripture is theonoustos, is God breathed? Well, how much? All. All All of it. That's what makes it scripture. It's not scripture if it's not inspired of God. It's not inspired of God if it's not scripture. It's the same thing. And in your notes, to what is Paul referring when he says all Scripture? Because that's the problem, right? All Scripture. Well, some people go, ah, well, all that means is the parts of the Bible that are actually Scripture. Because they they like to say, well, I believe the Bible is God's Word in part. Some of it is inspired of God. Not all of it. What does Paul mean? 
When he says all scripture, what is he talking about when he says all scripture? The Jews, you can jot this in your margin if you got room. The Jews had regard for three categories of scripture. The first is the law. Moses wrote the law. What is the law? That is, traditionally, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the Pentateuch. That's the law. And then... There's another category called the prophets. The prophets, the Jews considered all the books from Joshua through the minor prophets. Okay? What's left? You got a category called the writings. The writings. And they considered all the poetic books to be a part of the writings. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. You got some histories in there. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Lamentations, First and Second Chronicles. You're, the entirety of your Old Testament comprises these three categories right here, without exception. And in Luke 24, when Jesus has risen, he appears to a couple of guys as they're walking on the road to a place called Emmaus. And they don't know who he is, but they're talking about this Nazarene that was just crucified. And all the events of the last few days, and Jesus says to them in verse 25, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe that all the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. You got all three categories right here. What did he interpret to them from those categories, from the Old Testament? It says, the things concerning himself. In essence, the Gospels are predicted and fulfilling of the entirety of the Old Testament. All the scriptures that are inspired are connected directly to the Gospels which are inspired. And so it's all scripture. And I want to point out something because some of you are like well what about the new testament well we're gonna we're gonna get into that in the coming weeks but let me give you a, a sneak peek okay first timothy 5 in verse 17 paul writes this and i'm kind of partial to this and this is kind of how i'll close tonight i'm kind of partial to this verse because it says let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine and what paul is talking about he's essentially talking about why it's necessary to uh take care of and adequate adequately compensate pastors This is a very special word from the Lord here tonight, okay? <laughs> but to drive that point home and to support what he's saying, he quotes some scripture. And in verse 18, he says, for the scripture says, and here's the quote. The first quote, there's two quotes. The first quote is, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's the first quote. Now, what you need to know is he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Notice he says, for the scripture says, okay? So he quotes from Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the original context is about oxen and about how you don't muzzle them and he's making a correlation. Don't mistreat a beast of burden uh, in the same way don't mistreat your pastor, okay? So I'm gonna get a t-shirt that says, don't muzzle the ox, all right? <laughs> So he, he identifies that as scripture and then he offers a second quote. Here's the second quote. The laborer is worthy of his wages. 
Now, where is that quote from? He, he puts it in the same category as Deuteronomy. Where is this quote from? It's not an Old Testament quotation. Where's it from? Well, it could be from one of two places. It could be from Luke 10, 7, or it could be from Matthew 10, 10. But these are the words of Jesus. And he is quoting from Matthew or Luke. Matthew, written in the early 50s AD. This book, 1 Timothy, written in 64 AD. So Gospel Matthew had only been around about 10 years. But Paul is putting it on the same level as the law written by Moses, both inspired of God, Old Testament, New Testament. It's both the thoughts of God. You can trust your whole Bible and you can identify it as the very thoughts of a divine creator who saw fit to deliver his word to mankind and not for no reason. It's so that we may find life, we may find salvation, and we may find direction for how we are to proceed. I'm excited about talking more about this. That's all I got for tonight, and that's enough, all right? God bless you for listening. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon these people. May the Bible come alive to them each and every day. It is transcendent. It is authoritative. Your mercies are new. Your promises are fresh in its pages. I pray that we would return to them every day and grow stronger uh, for the exercise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.